You're listening to Love Stories with me, Dolly Alderton. A series in which I talk to guests about their most defining relationships. The passion, heartbreak, longing, familiarity and fondness that has formed who they are. My guest this week is the actress Vanessa Kirby. On stage, she's played Masha in Chekhov's Three Sisters, Isabella in Thomas Middleton's Women Beware Women, and Stella to Gillian Anderson's Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire, both in the West End and on Broadway. On screen, she's appeared in BBC's Great Expectations as Estella, as an outrageous bit of posh totty in Richard Curtis's About Time, and she's currently filming opposite Tom Cruise for Mission Impossible 6. Most recently, Vanessa has wooed the nation with her portrayal of a young Princess Margaret in the Netflix series The Crown. I never even wanted to marry you. You were only ever an act of charity or desperation. And now you insult me, you. People like you don't get to insult people like me, you get to be eternally grateful. I first met Vanessa nearly 12 years ago in the basement loo of a dingy bar where we were both students at Exeter Uni. Job. Two and a half years ago. Over two and a half years ago. Do you remember how you told me about The Crown? No. You and I met up for dinner and you arrived with this huge old dusty book <laughs> that you what? got from the oh, library yes. of Princess Margaret. And I was like, oh, why are you reading that? And you said, can you keep a secret? And you told me. You obviously, from the get-go were really immersed in the kind of in, in that woman and the research for her. Mm. How much research did you do? Um, I mean, literally as much as I could because I was so scared about getting it wrong. Plus, I've never played a real person. Um, so I just, I mean, I read everything I could possibly find. Um, tried to watch loads of archive video and there's not that much. And the, the archive video is, the, I mean, it's all public. So you don't really see what she's like. And she's not on, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Mm-hmm. So I had to find like little moments when she was like cutting a ribbon or something and then swearing at someone off cam on mic, or, or still on mic, but after she thought the camera had stopped. Things like that yeah, were really yeah. useful. Um, and then also there's this amazing Desert Island Discs, which... I listened um, to that over the weekend. Did you? Yeah. Because that's your favourite, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. But she's just, um, she's a real kind of, her ballsiness really comes across in it. Yeah. He's Roy Plomley seems a little bit phased by her, I think, in the interview. I, I don't, I can't imagine anyone wouldn't be, if you know what I mean. Yeah. She was such like a force of nature, really. I'm really at the point of letting letting it go now, you know, because this, the show's out and we've done mm. all the press and, mm. you know, we're, we're obviously not doing any more and that, and, and, and in a way of letting go of her, it's, it's like really reflecting on what a big part of my life she's been now. Yeah. This woman that I knew nothing about. Yeah. And, really got to know really intimately or at least tried and did it feel because I often find even when I'm doing something as short term as interviewing a celebrity for that week that you write it when you're you you're researching them and you're finding kind of every hidden trace of them online or in books whatever it does feel like a bit like a possession yeah that's a good way of describing it actually and it's quite um because you get, and also you get to sort of know, like I, I was so excited coming back and doing another season because it's the first job I've ever done where I really got to know um, somebody and then got to grow up with them mm-hmm. more. You know, mm-hmm. when you do, even when you do a play, like I've only done one play, Streetcar Named Desire, where we came back after a year and a half, but you're still doing the same bit of that person's life that you've come to somehow try and understand. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so to really, to know somebody and then to be able to play with that, I'd have loved to do it forever, really. Really? Just just to live somebody else's life for that amount of time like that was, I just feel so lucky as a human being to have really imagined and then sort of physicalised or realised someone else's life and the difficulties and similarities and... Well, it's funny you should mention similarities. Oh my God, because I'm nothing like her, really. But yeah. No, no, yeah. I, I think there are... <laughs> There's a whiff of Princess <laughs> Margaret about you. Oh my God, I think there always will be. Because there yeah. was there's a scene in this series that I saw where she comes in from a long day or a party and she throws her shoes on the yeah. floor. She's just like, there's a lovable chaos to her that, that I see in you. Like yeah. on Instagram, you posted that brilliant thing that I reposted about her kind of morning schedule. Mm. Which, what did it say? It was like... I think it's, she wakes up and for two hours she scans through the newspapers and then leaves them scattered all over the floor with the radio on. And then she has a long bath for an hour. I love how her accent comes in. She has a long bath for an hour. Then she has a vodka pick me up <laughs> just for fun at midday. And then goes downstairs and has lunch with half a bottle of wine with her mum. It's just like, what is that? And people love that, don't they? What, what, what is it about that that, the, that people love, that quality in somebody? Something I've noticed particularly with this season of The Crown, it's, Margaret has become sort of a meme online. What is that? Someone said that to me the other day. I don't actually know, A, what a meme is. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm saying, what is that about that? But also, what, yeah. She's become kind of iconic. I mean, she was to a certain generation anyway, but to a younger generation, something about her symbolises um, a, a kind of unapologetic passion. Is it because someone said the other day that that she's like she's a relatable role in a way? I suppose that the royal family are so they're the last kind of public personas that are really relatively private, and you don't really know the the the, the human or the personal yeah. behind it. Yeah, or the flaws. Yeah, exactly. And so you have a sort of like Margaret's a hot mess, really, isn't she? Yeah, you know. And I think we all sort of identify with snotting over an ex boyfriend or whatever mm. it is mm. that that you see, yeah, the sort of personal human qualities of... The one thing that kept coming back was this sort of the dark nights of the soul. I always imagined her had these dark nights of the soul and a kind of existential panic. And I've definitely had existential panic. I, I think, you I mean, you've talked about it loads, haven't you? It's mm. a... What is it to be here? Like, what am, what am I... What body am I in? Who? What? What is this reality we're all living in? And... And what did you come to make of her after two and a half years? What was your kind of understanding of her at that time? Because obviously you only presumably knew and researched her for that period of time. Yeah, I didn't go beyond 1964 because I I really want, didn't want to play the end of it. You know, mm. like I, when I first got the job, I remember people saying, oh God, yeah, Margaret, God, what a nightmare and so tragic. And I was like, but okay, so she, that was the, that was a sort of illusion that people had of her. Yeah. Or perception, rather. Um, and so who was the young girl behind that? And, you know, we knew that she was technically an alcoholic, or at least I heard, was told many times. Um, and she had this kind of hedonistic, um, slightly nihilistic sort of um, life at the end. And, where was the sort of what? What was the where was the child than the girl that became mm. the adult from mm. that? And that was like my job really was mm. to try and sort of set up this person and try and understand 
and to find those key moments in our story anyway, or our narrative, where things shift and where the sort of external meets the internal life of the person. So we always found it really interesting. There's a book called uh, The Little Princesses, which was um, written by their nanny, who looked after them when they were very young. And the differences between the sisters were always like just... I mean, there was a quote saying, like, there were never two sisters less alike. Really? And Margaret was always... I mean, as her father said, Margaret's my joy, Elizabeth's my pride. I totally fell in love with her, really. I mean, totally fell in love with her. With... uh, Especially because she's somebody... And talking about love, really. She's the character... Of all the characters I played, she's the one that feels things the most deeply, I always felt. Definitely. So the range of feeling... When somebody has a sort of accessibility to her feelings, you know, she doesn't shut any of them down. She either feels, she can feel very, very sort of, she can really go to a dark place or be kind of ecstatically um, happy. And all the th- all the colours in between, all the shades. And it became quite clear when we were doing scenes with Claire in the first season, trying to develop, always sort of, using each other as a soundboard for the differences in a sense. And mm. Margaret doesn't have a filter. Like she doesn't, she's not able to contain what she feels. It always comes out. Mm. And that's, I'm pretty similar, I suppose, in a way. I yeah, find it quite hard to hide how I feel. Yeah. But um, it was scary because I hadn't played a character like that, particularly on screen. I thought, oh my God, this could be literally a pantomime ham. A pantomime yes, day, yes, you know. exactly. With Claire sort of being so subtle and beautiful and brilliant and internal. And I really had to trust that that was yeah, the person yeah. that Margaret was. Yeah. It's funny you should say that thing about the feeling deeply because of all the episodes of The Crown that I've watched, which I obviously adore, but the, the moment that really moved me was the episode that kind of hones in on, um, it, you know, affairs of the heart with Margaret in this series where an, an engagement is cancelled in a rather cruel way and she comes home and she throws herself around her room and she's drinking and she's this kind of she's she's broke completely broken and then what's so clever is in that very same episode is mirrored the exact opposite where she comes home from this night with the man that will become her husband and she's kind of dreamlike and she floats in and she's got this smile on her face and she's dancing around and it was so strange to watch because it it reminded me of being a teenager mm. And I would do that, you know. I would come home in a sort of other dimension if I felt like I'd yeah. have this close closeness with a new person and nothing could touch me. And as I watched it, I wondered, is this arrested development? Is this a woman that remained sort of adolescent because she was in this, mm. this kind of very closed-off world mm. in many ways? Or is it that she was just a deeply, deeply passionate person who felt things very deeply? I think it's probably a combination of both of them. Uh, everyone always asks me that, it, you know, it's really hard to talk about the real people because I have no idea and that sisters could have been best friends forever and mm. I think they were very close um, mm. throughout their whole lives. Apparently someone said yesterday that um, when they went round to, uh, they had some meeting in a private room with the Queen and every single picture on the wall was Margaret. So there was definitely a, really? uh, something really interesting going on. But in our in our, in our our story, we... the the, the Believably, the psychological truth for us was that there's a lot of resentment and undealt with trauma, really, mm-hmm. between them um, and uh, tension. And 
the thing I always thought when people ask me what's the relationship like between the sisters, the one thing I thought is they didn't have help, you know. It's not like they could sit down with a therapist and talk about their feelings or even with their mum. I think mm. uh, Peter Morgan, the, the, the creator, talked a lot about how this is a family that don't talk about their feelings. Yeah. And Margaret's trying all the time yeah. and she can't contain her. So really she doesn't have a vessel for it, you know. And in a way it's understandable that through the kind of prism of men that she she finds her identity. It's not a, it was to me never a coincidence that her father dies and in a way she's she then very quickly starts with Peter Townsend who is her father's right-hand man yeah, and is older, older than her yeah and is is her father's equerry and she's grown up with since she was what 12 or so and been around a lot with her father and then when that is taken away from her it always felt like it wasn't just a loss of a boyfriend or a potential fiance it was more than that it was almost like a subconscious mm. father leaving her again or like a second bereavement yeah exactly and then that's where we pick up in season 2 is how then does somebody put themselves back together or re- or adjust or and we've all been in that heartbreak situation haven't yeah. we where we've just been on the floor and we think we're never going to recover because it's so painful it's probably one of the most the most painful things um and then i suppose that's why for me the tony armstrong jones thing i remember coming into the second season and thinking, oh my god i really really want her to be happy and i mm. really want her to find love and oh my god it's been so exciting to get this like wild kind of bohemian rogue yeah rebel really the sort of like um completely met her match and and it, for it to be a sort of Romeo and Juliet love story but actually very quickly um, I had had a lot of conversations with Benjamin Karen who's the best director in the world who and we talked um, about the fact that these people are meeting each other with deep wounds yes. and you're meeting each other in a place where Margaret's still grieving probably for her father still sort of unresolved and is coming from a place of yeah, deep pain, really. Mm. And so is he, as we see in episode seven more um, in the relationship with his mother. And also, where's the salvation or the rescuing or the, you know, like you said, another dimension. It's like taking you out of. Mm. And it's a pain reliever, too, mm. in a way, um, because in one episode, I just kept thinking, how could you go from feeling so horrific to so ecstatic? Mm. And what is that in somebody? And what? how does love do that? And what is love? And how is the... Um, what is this version of love for her? Mm. So we're road testing the format of this podcast with you because you're the first guest on Love Stories. So the first love story I'd like you to tell me about is the story of your first love. So... This can be a relationship you had with a person or a place or a thing, probably in a formative time in your life, maybe something that you fell into wholeheartedly before you knew any better. Two things I think kind of went in tandem was Jack from Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) I I obviously had it in front of my bed. My parents took me to see it when I was 11 and I thought it was like really, because I wasn't 12, you know, it was a 12. Oh, right. So. I felt like it felt really like I don't know, dangerous, <laughs> and and I just was in in the Wimbledon Odeon. In the Wimbledon Odeon, yeah. <laughs> oh my god, I remember it so well, and um, and I just fell totally in love with Jack. With Jack or with Leonardo DiCaprio? Probably Jack, to be honest. I think I would, either would have, either both, like deadly combo. 
Um, I used to kiss this poster before every night before I went to sleep. And then the other person I used to kiss was Jerry Halliwell from the Spice Girls. Do you know, it's funny. I think a lot of young women had that with Jerry. I mean, I was sort of in love with her, yeah. I think. And I met them. At one, I nearly died. Spice Girls. I remember getting the first little... Do you remember getting their first album on a little tape? Yeah, putting it on my Walkman. Mm. I wonder what it was about her because I felt the same. That I felt this like intimacy with Jerry. Yeah, what is that? I think, think it's she's like sensual. She's, she's sensual. the most sensual, wasn't she, out of all of them? Yeah, there was something about... There was a reason you knew that she was one all the boys fancied. And she was very confident with her sexuality and very joyful with it. Did all the boys fancy her? Yeah, I think they all thought she was dirty. You know, I think there was... And I think there's something in, as a young woman, when you're first getting these feelings, but you don't know what those feelings are. I think maybe it's Jerry, you know, woke that up. Because I really felt the same. Did you feel, did you get it with anything else? Like um, any other sort of film or... Actor yeah, or cartoon. A cartoon, I did. Yeah. Why do we? Someone said the other day, "Who was your? What was your fictional crush?" And my, I said, "I said Aladdin." And Aladdin. I know. I really weird. I remember mine was Eric from The Little Mermaid, and then <laughs> didn't float my vote. Didn't float my vote. Too cheesy. Wasn't your type. <laughs> I remember telling everyone at school when I was seven that we were going out. Eric from The Little Mermaid. Yeah, really. Yeah. And so obviously, I hadn't realised that it was pictures on a page and I truly but this was an ongoing thing when I was a teenager that I would have entire pretend relationships Fantasy, with yeah. people like Will Young I wrote a whole book <laughs> about our relationship in a notebook I also what about Splash do you remember that movie The Mermaid with and Tom Hanks I can't remember it oh Tom God. Hanks both of them I really loved I watched it again <laughs> and again there was something sort of <laughs> come on <laughs> Sort of like erotic about it. I don't know what it was. Maybe it's something about mermaids and the tail and the... But quite weird. And obviously the other thing is as well, I think the problem is, is that we child sexuality, you know, yeah. understanding, getting these feelings. Like I remember watching Peter Andre on Tops of Hops and feeling something mm, mm, that wasn't mm. how I felt for my friends or family. But, but because we're so embarrassed... Mm about young people having those feelings, we don't, we just shut it down. But you know, um, like indigenous tribes, and the Samburia, for example, are, as a tribe, they, it's the initiation, they, they, sexuality, sensuality is so um, important. Mm. It's essential mm. as mm. a child. And the transitioning, that ha- the, the, it's, they have ceremonies and rituals and it's always talked about and it's incredibly open and everything's, sort of held if you know what I mean yes, yeah. whereas I feel like and not we, shamed not shamed and we sort of have all these confusing mixed messages yes. about sensuality sexuality growing up how but we, your where parents uh, t- t- correct me if I'm wrong I always felt that your parents were quite relaxed about yeah. sexuality and stuff they were yeah probably because of the nature of your dad's job yeah yeah, I remember really early on, actually. Just to make it clear for the listeners, so your dad doesn't sound like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. like a pimp. <laughs> um, he, no, my was, he works in... Urology. Right, that's it, yeah. So he does prostate cancer. Yeah. But because yeah. he's a urologist, I mean, literally, like, all the books that I, were in his study, my sister and I used to, like, leaf through on the floor with, like, really weird 
diagrams and like pictures and um and then like one chapter on like piercings of genitalia <laughs> it's like really weird like hmm, this sort of uh, odd so odd um so yeah it was definitely i mean incredibly open yeah, yeah. but it was very yeah it was very talked about which i think is healthy actually it's it's it? it's much healthier mm. i think it's strange that something happens when you're a teenager where and this is not just my parents it's it's nearly all parents particularly in this country where it's you know that they're developing their sexuality either actively or cognitively or whatever you know just privately and they're fine with that but it, it absolutely can never come to light mm. or be mm. spoken about mm. it's very victorian mm. it's very strange it is isn't it it's a what is that why is it? i think it's just because we've been taught yeah the shame about it mm. probably as a culture over the years Really religion, to be honest. Yeah, I think it probably is religion. On to romance. Yeah. I've been thinking about whether I would call you a romantic person, and I don't think I would, actually. Really? Mm. Yeah, because I think you're someone with quite a low cringe threshold. That's very true. There's like a fine line, yeah. I think. Yeah. Mm. I think for you, romance is probably more poignant in kind of everyday kindness or intimacy rather than sort of a grand gesture yeah do you think that's true yeah definitely because I also think that romantics often myself included in this are people who don't want to commit to anything really yeah. because it's more fantasy exactly because it because the the most romantic thing about being a romantic is the pursuit of love mm. so there's something very very sad about relinquishing that when you get to the real stuff you mean when you when you meet someone and, and commit, commit to them, them. Mm. intimacy and commitment i think is the most romantic thing yeah but, but that's very you i think you've always been like that mm. i'm really learning what intimacy really is and i think intimacy is and you can have it with friends but in terms of romance in relationships intimacy is and yeah, this is the most romantic thing is being seen, being mm. risking being seen for who you truly are. And mm. even if you don't know who you truly are, it's a daily commitment to trying to do that, which is I show you all the parts of me. Yes, no, yeah. And <laughs> make yourself them. entirely vulnerable. Yeah. And like the ugliest part, the things yeah. that I'm ashamed of or, I, yeah. or I've learnt are to be ashamed of. Mm. Um, my, yeah, what I see is as ugly. I allow you to see that. And if you then, if I trust you enough to show you and you trust me enough to see it and I don't run and I accept you for those things, that is... The closest you can be to yeah. someone. Yeah. But I definitely used to have, I, I, I was, I suppose when I was a teenager, my first boyfriend, I was like, so... I mean, the first time you fall in love is just mad, isn't it? You just, you, and those... And the romance, what you think is romance, like the sending each other songs and, you know, like terrible letters. Oh, my God. Do you keep all that stuff? I think I've probably got it somewhere. Yeah, actually, I do. Somewhere at home, my mum's house. Somewhere. I didn't know. I didn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have known what intimacy was because I think you have to try and aim to sort of like, I think, I mean, ultimately, intimacy with somebody else. You can only really do it if you have it with yourself. Yeah, exactly. You begin to try to get to know yourself. And also a lot of it's about luck with intimacy because you've got to be ready. When you finally get to a point 
And some people have this from childhood. Some people, I think, never have it where, as you said, you can show yourself for all you are and and pass that into another pair of hands with trust. You need to meet someone who's there as well. Yeah. You both need to yeah. meet at that place. Somebody once said that this is really, um, I think it's really true, is that you, um, you always meet someone that, where you're at. You attract where you're at. I completely agree with that. So the person you're with is usually your reflection. Yeah, totally. Of how you feel about yourself. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes if you're adver- like you have an aversion to to elements of the person, I mean, it's probably because what is it? If you spot it, you've got it. Mm-hmm. And it might just be a mirror image. It might be slightly um, the same core thing, but just manifested in a slightly different way. Mm. But I always remember someone saying to me quite early on, like. There can be just view it as like a metaphor, as like a so you can be lying down, you can be kneeling up, you can be sitting up, and you can be standing up, and you will attract you will attract and be with the person that's on your level. So if yeah. you want to be with somebody that's standing up, you've, you've got to get standing. to the standing up. You've got to get there, and they will never that yeah. person standing up will not drag you off the floor. They just they just you won't. And so as I think you grow in your life, you end up being attracted to all sorts of different people as you grow. In a way. And it's kind of wild to recognise that as you get older because what you're doing then is relinquishing romantic fantasy and saying, mm, I have quite a big part to play in this. Mm. I take responsibility for this rather yeah. than this magic thing is going to descend on me. Totally. And accountability, dolls, that's so true. It's the responsibility of um, always... Uh, this is the other massive thing I've learned. I think it's just the answer. has been so amazing in my life, which is... My feelings are totally my responsibility. Yeah. No one else can make me feel yeah. anything. If you always look to take accountability and responsibility for your own thing, go, okay, wow, this this is happening in front of me in whatever way. And um, I'm feeling like this. I wonder why and what, then that's my responsibility to take care of. So whether it's in a friendship, an intimate relationship, family, whatever it yeah. is, it's amazing to bring that. It's amazing yeah. to put that first because then you can say, wow, can you help me explore this? Because I'm having this sort of reaction and I'm feeling like this. Mm. I think it might be because it reminds me of dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And so I'm feeling very scared or I'm feeling very vulnerable or I'm feeling, very, I'm feeling in fear. Rather than you, yeah, you put this feeling inside me. Yeah. I remember in younger relationships, it was always like, you know, yeah, but you'd, I remember, I really remember those things, like being, being told that as well. Like you did this or you, that, mm. you, and actually... I think you should ever start a sentence like that mm. in, in any sort of discussion, particularly in relationships. It should mm. be I, you know. And then, and then you get to explore it together. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Really amazing. I'd like you to tell me a story of unrequited love next. <laughs> MSN, really. <laughs> <laughs> All those boys and everything. I've got a cousin who's a year older than me, and I was actually really lucky because she sort of taught me everything about love, uh, like from a teenage perspective. Because yeah. she was one year older, she was super cool. She had loads of guy mates. I didn't know anybody. I was a massive loser. I have like five years of my life where I was just like, I actually look at a picture. I'm like, <laughs> I had to try and accept that little girl actually because like she's just dweeb. I have to. Sort yeah, of... it is hard that because I had the same where I sort of just cancelled that part of yes, my life. I think it's really bad to do that. I yeah. realize, I've been thinking about that recently. Where it's like, I'm embarrassed by that person. Yeah. Or they don't fit in with who I feel I am now, so I'm just going to yeah. sort of scratch that from the record. Do you know why? I think it's because those years are like where you're most vulnerable to shame. 
And then suddenly it becomes about whether you're attractive to men. But there's no support to be able to understand where self-worth aligns with that. And I was like, what I see is quite hideous, really. (laughs) I mean, but I have to try and I really have to work on um, accepting that person. Because do you you know what I mean? I'm sure we all like so many. I mean, all of us would look at a picture of us at 13 and go, oh, my God. But I still even do that sometimes with uni. And I'm sure you do. Yeah. if someone meets me and I don't remember them and they say, oh, we knew each other extra, I'll immediately go, oh, well, I was a bit of a dick. Yeah. You know, I'll immediately yeah. di- dissociate myself from that person. Yeah, yeah. totally, Which is totally. so sad, I think. Yeah. It's sad because in a way you have to accept that the journey to now yeah. took all those incarnations of different forms of who you were. And I think it is when you, yeah, it's the accumulation of shame. I think shame is, have you heard that Brené Brown um you must have Power heard. of vulnerability. Yeah, so and basically, it's, it's, she talks about shame, doesn't she? There's an yeah. amazing audio book, I think, on Audible. Um, and it's like six hours of her talking about shame and vulnerability. I think it's amazing. And I think it's so important for women because, like, I mean, no one fancied me or whatever. And, you know... <laughs> it's so mad for me to think there was a world that no one fancied no, you. Oh, no, no one. And that's not victim poor me, do you know what I mean? It's just no. like, literally, I remember like... Um, yeah, just all my cousins' guy friends who I we I started to like vaguely hang around with like bad, you know, like flares. Do you remember flares were a thing? Tammy girl. And the in the middle parting. Yeah. Did you ever go to Camden Market, Punky Fish? Probably to like buy some flares, but yeah. not not cool enough to hang around. No. So what happened with MSN that was unrequited? Just I think there was maybe a couple of guys that, you know, I was because it was like the first form of being sort of semi anonymous. Yeah, they just were really rude to me. <laughs> I had that. Yeah, it's hard for anyone who's listening. I'm very aware we might have people listening born post 2000. MSN was like an instant messaging thing, which I actually talk about a lot in my first chapter because I think that taught me a lot about how I presented to boys because it was a, because mm. as you said, it was sort of semi anonymous. So yeah. there was this space where I could decide to sort of be whoever I wanted to be and form these kind of relationships that felt quite intimate but actually with two strangers kind of performing to each other yeah and especially yeah it's the first form isn't it the first form apart from like little text messages on the Nokia thing yeah yeah I think it really damaged me actually in terms of how I relate to boys imagine how I I just think it must be really hard now with all the Instagram stuff it must be (sighs) even harder because at least with Amazon it's just like black and white words I, I think I remember some of them saying like, oh, fuck off, you're really rank or something like that yeah. to me or whatever. I can't remember what it was, but I remember being... Oh, it's horrible. Really? It's horrible. Like, and you feel shame because you feel like there's something wrong about you. Like, I'm essentially wrong. Yeah. That's, what, that's what she says, isn't it? The shame is instead of I've done something wrong. Which and, is then, and then that's and when I would, when boys would do that to me. Yeah. That's when I would Princess Margaret it up in oh my, my room, God. throw myself around. Totally. And then go into absolute music. fantasy about some some fantasy man that's going to save you yeah. from the f- the feelings of feeling not good enough I think Jack from Titanic yeah and then when did when was your first boyfriend you were quite young weren't you yeah 15 so then after did that all that kind of shed slightly when you when you kind of first met someone in what is that, that feeling of sort of deep shame and insecurity probably not I think no. I think we all grow up with just burying it and not mm. thinking about it really mm. but I think inevitably you carry it around with you wherever you go and it's sort of a journey to self-acceptance really to go okay I'm 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 enough just as I am I don't Mm. need anything extra I don't need anything less I think it's like a daily thing really I don't think we're taught it really I'd much rather have learned that those skills 
learning to try and like yourself than biology. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I don't understand why we don't. It's definitely not a culture which um, is focused. I mean, it, is there any, it has anything focused on that, really. I think, yeah. I think it's seen as self-indulgent in our culture. Is it? I do, yeah. Yeah. I, and also I feel that the culture of self-knowledge mm. and self-acceptance, there's still something in English culture that, that is seen as slightly mm. mawkish mm. and self-indulgent and unnecessary and a, yeah. bit, a bit of a waste of time. Do you think? Do you feel like that's changing though with the generations? I hope so. Yeah, I feel like it. I feel like it's becoming more. Um, I don't know. Maybe not. I feel like our parent generation much less likely to look at their stuff. When did you feel like you even knew what that might be? Oh, twenty-seven, twenty-eight. Mm, twenty-seven is the time. Twenty-seven is the time. Do you know about Return to Saturn? Yeah. Is that the phrase? It is that, isn't it? Yes, yeah, Saturn Return. Saturn yeah. Return. It's this astrological period mm. of the greatest change in a human, apparently, between the ages of 27 and 33. And that's rung true with all the people in my life. Mm. But, yeah, it, it goes back a long way, as you said. And it's so funny that you say that thing, that MSN is really the root of it, because that's literally the first chapter of my book mm. about these issues with men that I had for many years and tracing it back and yeah I wonder how many millennial women and men could trace back this mm. kind of strange disconnect with the opposite sex and low self-worth with this kind of obsessive medium that we yeah. all talked on oh well, it, was, it was obsessive wasn't it, it? Was, it was obsessive hours and hours and hours and hours I would go on holiday with my parents and the first thing mm. I would do would be find in the hotel mm. the sort of dark room <laughs> the computer I remember my mum had like before MSN, it was like AOL. Yeah, and yeah. AOL chat. And I started talking <laughs> to some random man. Oh, every one of our generation did that. Quite weird, isn't Walk it? Walk into chat about? rooms. Yeah. And sometimes you'd get a friend over and you'd sit and go yeah. into chat rooms and yeah. talk to random people. Yeah. I don't, do people still do that? I feel like no, they don't. No, people don't do that. It's quite weird if you think about it. Yeah. Because it's, it's almost like an alternate reality, isn't it? Where you just go, okay, I'm me, but I'm also not me. Well, that's this it. This is a space yeah. in which... We're yeah. all talking to each other, but we're not really relating properly because, like, that boy might may or may not have said those nasty things, whatever, mm. in person. Mm. Maybe he would. But, um... Blood is on the hands of MSN, <laughs> basically. I know you must be really bored of talking about this, but I'm so fascinated by it. So please indulge me for a brief moment mm. about on screen or on stage love. Yeah. For me, the idea of being physically close with someone over a period of months with filming or, or stage, looking into each other's eyes with deep, convincing meaning and saying beautiful things. I would find it very hard not to fall in love with that person. Because mm, you try to, you, you make it real. Yeah. Is that a challenge or is it just so awkward? It's not awkward. Um, you just, it's all about your own boundaries, I guess, really. But um, I think at uni it happened a few times. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> Do you? Which one? I can't remember who. Um, every play, every lead. Every man. play, it was like yeah. he's amazing. And then the day you finish, you're like, oofed. Um, <laughs> no, God, it, yeah, it's no, it's not hard actually. It doesn't. 
I never generate any real feelings. Right. I just, it's like work, really. Yeah, it's almost like you're a professional actress and I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What about, I was thinking about sex scenes. Have you ever done any sex scenes on screen? Yes, I've done, well, there was one written in The Crown in episode seven of the season. And, And again, we never wanted to do anything. We had long discussions about what it should be and... It just became clear that to sort of titillate is not the aim. With Margaret, I was like, no one wants to see royal boob, not really. <laughs> there was one, there was a sex scene between Elizabeth and Philip in the first episode of the first season. And I think they were in South Africa filming. They were like, I just don't think anyone it's wants to weird. see the Queen yeah. having sex. Even though they're these two absolutely gorgeous young actors holding those characters in your head, it does, it does feel intrusive and strange. There was a scene in the end of episode uh, 10 of the first season where Peter comes, Peter Townsend comes home and they see each other for the first time and so they're snogging and like undressing a little bit. And then we had an afternoon and there was like a couple of hours. We finished something early and the director was like, maybe we should see them consummate this thing, you know, so it's more yeah. painful for them when, they, when they're not allowed to yeah. carry on. And so everyone was like, okay, 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 okay. Nipple covers it ready. And like, we need like a flesh colored thong. And, right, you know. yeah, yeah. and so we sort of sat on the bed. And then it literally was like, he put his hand on mine and cut. <laughs> he was like, that says it all, really. Don't really need much more than that. It just didn't feel right. It just yeah. didn't. And actually, with Margaret and Tony, theirs was in, they, were, they were an incredibly sort of sexual couple. I mean, massively, sort of like electrically so. Um, mm. But. And they talk about sexuality. Mm-hmm. And everything I read was that they were just sexually very compatible and everything right. else. Yeah. But um, we have the scene sort of in the dark room when they're developing photographs. Oh, it's and very sexy, that scene. Well, it just, it's more about, I always feel like it's about energy, isn't it? Totally. It's like flesh on flesh totally. type thing. And um, you don't even touch each other, those characters in that scene. And it, mm. it felt very electric and passionate. When we did the actual, what was written as a sex scene... I think Peter even wrote lots of different positions. <laughs> and I was like dreading it coming up. And thank God I got on with Matt. Matthew did so well. He's amazing. We were just both like <laughs> gripping the makeup chair in the morning. We were like, all right, darling, you're ready for this. Um, and oh then we God. sort of like Ben Caron, who yeah is incredible. He just allowed us to have sort of the flat of Tony's thing. And Matt Good Matt found this song, which is actually in the actual scene. Yeah. Um, it's like these violins. I can't remember exactly what it is. Some classical thing. Yeah. And... Um, he put that on. Ben said, "Okay, let's just blast that really loud, and you guys find it. Whatever, whatever feels real to you." Yeah. And it became way more about playfulness and vulnerability. And mm-hmm. like, I'm throwing the shoes at him, and I'm I'm also Margaret, sort of like pushing him away and shoving him, and he's shoving her because it's not. Yeah, it doesn't have to be sexual. Graphic. Do you know what I mean, yeah, yeah, it's it's more about a dynamic. Between yeah, between them. them. I always yeah. think that communicates so much more than any sort of like bum shot or something. <laughs> So now moving on to passionate love. Can you tell me the story of something or somewhere or someone that you had a very intense, perhaps short-lived love affair with? So something that made or makes you lose your mind a bit. Okay, so one of the things that I'm, I'm probably most passionate about life, um, embarrassingly, is acting. I say embarrassingly because, um, I don't know, it's always a bit wanky saying something like that, isn't it? <laughs> it is such a weird profession if you think about it. 
Sometimes mm. I have days where I'm like, what am I doing? This is so weird because you're pretending to be somebody else for what? So other people can also pretend that you're somebody else. It's very, but you are your job. It's very weird. Yeah. It's a very weird thing. Yeah. It's, it's very hard to kind of quantify and it becomes normal because we all accept what acting is and it also is quite ancient, isn't it? The Greeks mm. and everyone, it's like everyone loves stories and they love to suspend their disbelief and be taken into a different world, you know, a different sort of, maybe a different understanding of a side of themselves or humanity or whatever it is. Yes, yeah. Um, I always remember it was the place that made me feel happiest, actually, and most alive and most accepted. I remember that that was really key. I was quite badly bullied at primary school and um, that was a real, it was a, a place for me where I really felt I could just be me. Like if I watch videos, I'm like, God, I really am like geeky as hell. But do you feel moved by it when you when you see that girl now? Uh, yeah, starting to, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, and I also remember thinking, I like I managed to get into National Youth Theatre. It was I think I got like turned down a couple of times, and then I got in, and I remember walking in and suddenly being like, Oh my God, this is so cool! I'm around those people that understand me or are like me I think there's a real I'm really really grateful and there's definitely a sort of beautiful um, quality to so many of the actors I've been around is that they have I don't know in my experience I found them especially early on in my life people that are mo- that incredibly open because they have to explore lots of parts of themselves and they have to be willing to be vulnerable and stand up and look like, you know, t- a complete twat mm. most of the time. Mm. I mean, you feel like a twat all the time. Mm. Um, make a fool of yourself is the sort of main quality, I think. Mm. I remember when I came round to your room in halls, you had a picture on your wall of you in Macbeth or something. <gasps> oh, my God. In, in a Hamlet. school yeah. play. Hamlet. Oh, I did. And oh I remember God. saying to you, why, what's... Because that is quite a geeky thing mm. to do. And you and you didn't exude that. You you were the girl that all the boys fancied and you were kind of, you were very cool. And it was such an insight into who you were kind of pre-uni when I saw that on your wall. And you said to me, that was the moment when I knew I wanted to be an actor. So it's really important yeah. for me that I hold that moment close oh, to well, me. It's so funny because I really didn't think anyone fancied me. That's so funny that you, so that's your There perception. was a photo of you in a bikini on Facebook that was passed around like it was a Hollyoaks calendar. That's really weird. (laughs) (laughs) So weird. By who? By actually who? By all those awful men at Exeter. Um, But yeah, so I, this obviously, I remember at that point thinking this obviously is something you are very serious about. And to have that passion and that, and that knowledge of mission so early is, is quite rare. I I think think I remember really clearly. I think I, I was, I've always been a terrible singer and, um, I auditioned like I thought that might be your unrequited love <laughs> singing. Yeah, you know, you know, I'm just. Have you heard me sing? You've told me you're terrible, but you've said that for some reason you still ha- in your head think that you might be good one day. And I sound a bit like Macy Gray actually, <laughs> being pushed to do it. Yeah, <laughs> which is kind of peculiar um, and alarming. But anyway, it's also not very good. But <laughs> but so I, I think I auditioned at like a school play for Guys and Dolls or something. And they said I was terrible. There's absolutely no way. And then I went to my, there was this one drama teacher who was incredible at school. Literally, she was like my little light at school. She was the best thing about school. 
one of the only good things about school for me. Mm. And um, uh, I said, can we, can we do Hamlet? <laughs> and she sort of blinked at me and was like, yeah, okay. And, and how so, old were you then? Uh, 15. Mm. And we did it. And I remember I played Gertrude, obviously. <laughs> Terrible, by the way. I saw a video of it. I thought I was quite good. I was so... I mean, I don't even know how my mum sat through that. Anyway, but I remember being off stage in this tiny little studio that they had. And um, they... Uh, and I remember walking down the corridor in between the scenes. And for some reason, I was just thinking her thoughts. Whoever this woman was I was mm. pretending to be and I was literally having her thoughts that's interesting and that was the moment yeah. that I thought oh my god I think this is something that I really 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 want to do properly and trans- and transcends sort of pretending yeah for you it was something more yeah because it's also accessing someone else's world in a way it was so different to my own life it felt amazingly kind of um, yeah transcendent or um the risk of sounding wanky, you know, probably is not. Mm. I mean, I'm not. You're an actor, mate. That's yeah. Fine. Do you know what I mean? I just you're allowed to sound wanky. I've actually just started working with a charity that I've always loved, and um, it's just like, oh my god, I just feel like it's such a twat for putting on a wig and silly accent all the time of my day. It's like <laughs> we should be doing something much more worthwhile. But yeah, so I'm not saying that what I do. Yeah, but anyway, there's definitely weirdly a passion for it. Um, yeah, that is very intense, and uh, it has not left at all. Because you remember I did so many plays at uni, some terrible ones you sat through. But Julius Caesar, all those spears. I mean, why do we take Julius Caesar up to the Edinburgh Festival, a comedy festival? No one sees a bunch of fucking students. I mean, you on the in togas, in togas, taking very seriously. Yeah, Yeah, very very seriously. You did take it very seriously, actually, Julius Caesar. All of us did. Yeah, there was many like that. If you remember, the one in Rwanda. Don't. (laughs) That's just a don't. I want to move on to talking about kind of lessons in love. What's the overriding lesson that you've learned about love as you've got older? Um, that you first, above all else, have to show love to yourself. Mm-hmm. What you show to yourself you, is, is only what you can give to others. And also, the other thing someone said the other day was, your life is not about you, which I thought was really interesting. How so? What did you read from that? Your life um, should be about other people. But that's completely contradictory to what I've just said, isn't it? No, no, I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting because mm. something that I, I think there are two opposing um, theories of happiness. And I think one of them is a more traditional kind of American therapy, which is first you must love yourself and then how you love others is a reflection of how you feel about yourself, and how you treat yourself and that, you know, you must find completion within internally and then everything else is extra. And then... There's another school of thought, which is you learn love for yourself by showing love to others. Mm. I think it's like with everything in life, a duality. Yeah. Both things are true at the same time. Yeah. And I think you have to work with both of them in opposition together. Yeah. (laughs) Which is self-compassion, kindness, you know, the internal voice that I think we all have, or at least Mm. I've definitely had, which is... The most critical, way more critical than you'd ever... The, the things I would say to myself are way nastier than the things you'd ever say to me, and mm-hmm. vice versa. Mm. So why, if we treat ourselves like that, are we going to be able to, you know? I think it's it's getting ho- getting in tune with that voice and learning to be kinder mm. to self, I think, is really crucial. And therefore, beginning to like yourself, accept yourself, 
as you are without needing anything more or less. But the other thing some, that I heard the other day was um, whatever you want more of, give, give to somebody else. So if you want more, uh, if you're feeling lonely, find someone else who's lonely and make them. And, uh, try well, that's exactly things. it. And that's something that I've realised more and more as I get older. And often on my podcast on the high low, we'll have people, young women writing, um, who feel very lost, you know, where I was in my mid twenty, early mid-20s, saying that they feel like there's no sort of meaning in their life and they keep trying these different things to make them feel fulfilled or happy and it's not mm. there. And a part of me wants to say, spend more time on your own and do all this journey of self-discovery. But more and more, what I advise is go and connect, go and help, volunteer, yeah. Yeah. Go talk to the loneliest person at the party, as you said. Go speak to people on the fringes. Go yeah. go um, make connections because I think that that somehow has been lost or underrated mm. in our world of self-improvement. Not only how useful that is for you to do that in the world, but how, how good it will make you feel mm. and how much it will help you love yourself. It's service, really, isn't it? Mm. How can I serve? Mm. Um, and that's why your life is not about you is, is a great line because the yeah the if you want to do more acting help someone else act yes exactly and the yeah you can only get what you give away mm. same principle but it's I think it is those two things because I think they go side by side those two things mm, it's a balance mm. but you're right isn't it it's the freedom from the bondage of self mm. bondage of self is Lonely. Mm. Something I've included in my book is everything that I knew to be true about love at different ages, a kind of list. So one's at 21, one's at 25, one's at 28. And there were real marked differences. Mm. And I was wondering if there's something when you look back on your, you've already slightly touched on this, but when you look back on your younger self or past relationships and you think, oh my God, you got that so wrong, that you thought that was a, a truth about love. Mm. I think commitment's scary, isn't it? Commitment's really scary. You, it's always seemed duck to water with you. Really? From the outside. Mm. And I've always been very jealous of that. Really? Yeah, I suppose just truly committing as in, which again is just being utterly honest all the time. Yeah. I think it's really important. That's something I've learned. Just God, there are a lot of work relationships, aren't so they? So hard. Yeah. So funny, isn't it? Because when you're younger, you kind of fantasise it mm. is the, the, the easy way out of the doldrums mm. of day-to-day -day life. Mm. And I used to think that so much. And then occasionally I see my friends that are in these long-term relationships navigating these like really difficult things and trying to keep this kind of third thing of the relationship alive. Oh, it's also as well... The, the the importance we place on relationships and the difference between being single and a relationship, it's all experience, it's all part of the same journey yeah. in a way. I think it's really cool to still be single because um, it means that the relationship when it comes in, in the time, whenever whenever that is, it's in a way, it's already there. Do you see what I'm saying? Like yeah. for you, that yeah. person that you might be with and want to, you know, yeah. spend some time of your life with, whether mm. it's having kids or not, you know, mm. and then you might move on to other people, whatever. It's, um, they're already there, really walking around the planet there, mm. just Strange waiting for that thing, moment. Yeah. So there's nothing to fear in a way. Like, 
being single is incredible. It was like so amazing for me. Yeah, I think it's um, societally you do feel a bit of a judgment or a bit embarrassed because I haven't, you know, my longest relationship was only two years and that ended when I was 24. And obviously I've had to be very transparent about that in a book about Mm. love, but something that I often feel is that those people and particularly those women somehow have a stunted emotional inner life that they don't know about commitment or um, patience or how to love. But I've learned all those things through my friendships. Yeah. So what's the difference really? Mm. Um, Also, it's just, it's so important to be with someone that you actually like. Yeah. Not just love. Yeah. I think there's a difference. Have you ever been with somebody that you love but you don't really like? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think you can probably count <laughs> a very specific one. Yeah, that was a big problem when I was younger mm. because it was the need for a relationship for this sort of boyfriend-shaped sort of cutout in my life was more important that there was yeah. just that presence was there yeah. rather than, as you said, mm. it's anyone that I feel any sort of connection mm. with, which is why I find it so funny that often when I have broken up with people I have absolutely no desire to have a friendship with them at all afterwards yeah and in my head I think well isn't that telling Mm. isn't that telling Mm. how funny yeah so true that if they're not filling a romantic duty Mm. in my life or this sort of certain space of fulfillment then I just don't really care about what they have to say (laughs) yeah yeah and also the um again it's a sort of like internal external dynamic which to think in order to make your insides feel good, you have to accumulate things on the outside, which is, includes a relationship. Mm. Nothing you accumulate, you get, whether it's a thing, a material possession, a relationship, praise, reassurance, whatever it is, it only has to come from inside you. We come into the world with nothing, we leave with nothing, and it's just a complete illusion that in order to be happy, we need to get things, which includes some of the external things about relationships, yeah. if it's not sort of soulful yes. inside qualities of those of, the, of intimacy, which isn't always easy. I can only say the following sentence to you because probably out of all our friends, you're the only on you're the only one more mad and hippieish <laughs> than I am. I was recently hanging out with a Buddhist monk, and he told me he felt like I was suffering from something he calls external factorism. Really? Yeah, which is exactly what yes. you were just saying. But if you think about it, I was thinking about it more, you know, if you've been watching Blue Planet recently and plastics and all that. No, I haven't. I'm the only person on earth who hasn't been watching it. Blue Planet. It's so good. It's so, it's so important that we're starting to have an awareness of what we consume. Mm. And you think, oh, chuck it away, then it's gone. It's not gone. It's still here. It's just not our responsibility anymore. Yeah. And that, I think, is so interesting, actually, that... We no longer have a relationship to the things in which we accumulate, discard, purchase, need, yeah, yeah. attain, throw away. And that's, and that's because we're in a consumerist capitalist culture. But that, I think that's translated often into how I look at love as well. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, of course it does. It's like it's you're, you're, you're purchasing something that serves your need at that yeah. time. And it's about how it looks outwardly. Exactly, and it's a, it's it's currency value, mm. which is this equals happiness, or this equals 
I'm good enough, I'm important. If I have these things, that means I'm enough. Or I'm better than or less than or whatever it is, instead of I am who I am. Yeah. And that's and that's where the value and the worth is. Do you know mm. what I mean? I mean, you know, with the first time someone did fancy you, it becomes a currency, right? Mm. Mm. Because it makes you feel better about yourself. But also it proves, and you feel this so much with social media as well, it proves that you are loved and by dint of that lovable mm, yeah so yeah. it's it's kind of a uh an outward boast yeah of being worthy of affection completely and also exactly and the person that you might be in a relationship with or whatever that you then attribute those those things to so you attach that meaning to is if you love me i'm lovable mm. those people whether it's a boy fancying me when you're 13 or 14 or whether it's um you know, a long-term relation, whatever it is, those things are transient. The only constant in your entire life is you. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to develop the relationship with yourself first. Mm. Something that I've realised is we put all so much risk and investment in romantic partners. Often, if we're being honest, I think most people, particularly most women, are guilty of at the expense of their friendships that sort of are shelved for those moments in time waiting to be returned mm. to if it all goes wrong. And the likelihood is, statistically, you're far more likely to be let down by a romantic partner. Mm. Yeah. You know, that it, it's um, probability's not on your side when you fall in love, you know, and you look at how much of it actually ends up being forever. And it's that quote, isn't it? Put more friendship in your romance and more romance in your friendships. Oh, I love that quote. It's good. I've never heard that before. Yeah, I believe that. And I believe that... Friendships blossom when you start treating them with the same attention and sanctity and respect that you treat your other half. That's such a beautiful quote. Finally, I want you to tell me a story of your everlasting love. So this is a thing or a person who you know you're going to adore until the stars turn cold. So something or someone that you believe you can't be torn apart from, no matter what you face. Got to be my sister. I knew Boo. you were going to say that. Yeah, it has to be though. Because she is just like, I don't think she's from this planet really. She's just got the most happy-go-lucky little soul yeah she anyone does. like nothing affects her like just nothing everything's fine everything's always fine but truthfully you know yeah, and i was gonna say is that is that a carapace or is that just no truthfully? i mean she has insecurities like everybody but really in terms of like just the easygoing she's the most easygoing person i don't know how she got i think she must have had like I don't know. She must have lived a lot of lives in her past lives or something, and just has gotten this time. They've got just gone. Yeah, you know what? You can just you can just you can just cruise it now because you've done it. You've done it all. Um, well, she's built up she's, resilience, perhaps. Yeah, but she's like, I mean, there's two times I remember her getting upset with me in my life. I remember really vividly. It literally scarred me forever. I I, I was so mean to her that she had she got a nosebleed. <laughs> and I've never forgiven myself for that, so I want to do that publicly. Um, How old were you? Apologise. She must have been like six or something. 
well, you can be forgiven for that. Do you think? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was so mean. Anyway, I just remember her crying loads and then just sh- blood shooting out. And I just thought I'd killed her. Um, and then the only other time she got annoyed at me that I can remember is <laughs> the only time I remember her snapping at me was I asked her to drive to a fish shop. <laughs> she was really hungover. While I was like, for some reason, I don't know, somebody gave me a present of like a morning of learning sushi or whatever. So I was like, right, this weekend I'm going to actually do it. Do you know what this was for? This was for my 25th birthday. Was it? At my you, house? Yeah. And With I, the sushi, right? And Boo told me yeah. that you two had had this big yeah. row about the fish shop. Yeah. So this is sort of my fault. Yeah. You made this sushi banquet for my birthday. That's, oh my God, I forgot it was for that. So what yeah. happened? Nothing. I just said, can you please drive me? And she was like, I'm so, I can't. I'm I was like, please, but I have to do I. So I made her come and she hates fish, absolutely hates it. She sat outside for about 45 minutes where I stared at this raw fish. I couldn't make up my mind. I didn't really know what I was doing. And eventually she was forced to come in and ask me to hurry the fuck up. And she was even more livid because she walked in, obviously was like met with just a... a Stench. Yeah. And she was like, about to bottom everywhere and, um, and got really stressed with me in the car. And I've never, that's the only time she's ever got cross with me. I feel a bit of responsibility in that. Yeah. You just, yeah. I forgot it was your 25th birthday. <laughs> yeah, does that, that's inherently your fault, yeah. But no, I do, yeah, she doesn't, other than that. And what are the similarities and differences between you two? Um, she's just, she's just able to just like let things go more than me, I think. I definitely more anxious or get worried about things. Yeah. And she just doesn't. I don't know how. Maybe like my brother and I were like the buffer for her. Do you know what I mean? Because she's the youngest. Yeah. So she never had to fight for anything really. Yeah. I'd like fight so much, like go to the pub all the time. Yeah. And she just could go really early on. I think my parents always said we just gave up by that point. Mm. Do you know what? She's also like everybody's favourite person in the room. Yeah. You know? Everyone that's in the room with her she's just just, and she doesn't try she has quite a golden Mm. kind of energy it's that that thing I think someone called Wayne Dyer who I think is really amazing um, said that ironically the more um, or paradoxically rather the more approval you seek the less you get yeah the less approval you seek the more you get and that's definitely my sister yeah that's so true because I'm such a desperate people pleaser yeah and I think people can sniff that out. Yeah, you can feel it. Can't and, you? and they don't trust it. It doesn't mm. make them feel... Ironically, you're trying so hard to make them feel mm. comfortable. Mm. And when people sense that, it makes them feel really on edge. I also sent her a text last week because dear old Keith Chegwin died. I know. And she looks quite a lot like Keith <laughs> She Chegwin. does look she's like Keith Chegwin. beautiful, but she somehow... Yeah, you know, especially you as a baby. You sometimes get that with very mm. beautiful people. That they're so attractive, but there's a striking <laughs> she resemblance. She really owns that as well. She's yeah, like, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, I think that will be a love story, you and Boo, that will be everlasting. Oh, it is, isn't it? Yeah. It is, it is. You've been my first guest on Love Stories, and you've been so, so brilliant. Thank you, Vanessa Kirby, for sharing your love stories with me. I love you. I love you. Thank you for listening to Love Stories. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes to give the series a boost and help others find it. And you can buy my book, Everything I Know About Love, published by Fig Tree, in Waterstones, on Amazon or in all good bookshops. Or buy the audiobook on Audible. 
Love Stories is recorded in the Penguin Studio in London. The music was composed and recorded by Lauren Benstead. Tune in next week when another guest will be telling me their love stories. Thank you.